Good morning, church. My name is Clint, one of the pastors of this church. If you're a visitor, I just want to welcome you. And again, especially to the college students, y'all welcome back. We missed you while you were gone. And it's a joy to have you return and be with us and to sing God's praises with us. Even as we think about the fact that King Jesus himself is coming back for a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All those who look to him by grace alone, through faith alone. And he's coming back that we might together worship him forever. So I thought it fitting to wear my new Chitenga polo. I don't know if you noticed it. I assume you were all curious about it. My friend, uh, one of my best friends in the world, Tim Bird, is a missionary in Zambia. And uh, in college some 20 years ago, uh, we prayed and asked the Lord to do many of the things he's been so faithful to do, even like uh, plant a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church and to take the gospel to the nations. And he's been in South Africa and then now Zambia uh, for uh, since we graduated college. And I thought it would be helpful even as we think about the nations and thinking about that end of worshiping Christ as his blood-bought people, people made up from every tribe, tongue, and nation uh, because, again, of his great grace. Now, we're in the middle of, especially if you're a new visitor uh, with us, we're in the middle of a series through the book of Matthew, but particularly in the middle of Jesus' fifth and final discourse in Matthew. It's about the second coming or the parousia of Christ, where he will return to bring judgment upon the world and to save his people, even as we've thought and sang about this morning. Many people refer to this as the Olivet Discourse because of its setting on the Mount of Olives. It's a private session between Christ and his disciples, answering particularly the questions they ask in verse 3 of chapter 24. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Christ has just talked about God's judgment upon the temple, that it would be destroyed, that no brick would remain. And so they say, tell us when these things will be and when will be the end of the age. Throughout the gospel, we've learned that they're waiting for Christ. They're wanting him to set up his earthly reign and rule in a, in a geopolitical sense. From the beginning of his ministry, that's what they've been thinking about and looking for. And so when he said the temple would be destroyed, they very well may have understood that one event combined with the second coming of Christ. And so they asked this question like, yo, is it coming? Is it time? Like, tell us, when will these things be? Last week in chapter 24, verse 4 to 14, we saw Jesus answer this question first with some general expectations about life between his first and his second coming. It was shaped in many ways around two different see to it's that he gave to them. See to it that no one leads you astray. See to it that you are not alarmed. So I summarized and, and, and said that Christ calls us to pay attention, but not to panic. To pay attention, but not to panic. And he gave these four general expectations. People will try to lead us astray. We will be tempted to panic, but he will keep us. We will endure. And the gospel will advance through us to the ends of the earth, to every tribe, tongue, and nation. So now that he's prepared his disciples generally, he moves on to answer the questions about the destruction of the temple and his second coming. In our text for today, we're going to look at verse 15 all the way to 51. There are two major sections of prophecy. That's verse 15 to 28 and then 29 to 31, followed by a parabolic illustration in verse 32 to 35. And then a call to focus on present faithfulness, 36 to 44, which includes another parabolic illustration, 45 to 51. <laughs> As I mentioned last week, lots of godly Christians who believe the Bible disagree on how to put together the text here that we're studying with Revelation chapter 20, eschatological chapters in Daniel, and in, from Paul in th uh, to the letter of Thessalonica. 
But in these two prophecies, it appears to me, it seems that Jesus is intermingling his answers to both questions. So he's responding to both of their questions, when will these things be, and tell us about the end, and he intermingles his answer. Spurgeon says it like this, Our Lord appears to have purposely mingled the prophecies concerning the destruction of Jerusalem and his own second coming, so that there should be nothing in his words to satisfy idle curiosity, but everything to keep his disciples always on the watch for his appearing. And so again, my goal is not to get into all the charts and all the debates, but to think about what do we learn from this text to keep us faithful in this present day? What do we need to know about the second coming of Christ such that we'd be faithful in this day? How do we be faithful in our day-to-day lives? Main point this morning, Jesus promises that all those followers will suffer. We will be safe upon his return to judge the world, and therefore we should focus on faithfulness. Although Jesus promises his followers will suffer, We will be safe upon his return to judge the world, and therefore we should focus on present faithfulness. So let me pray and ask for his help to that end. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus did indeed rise, that he ascended, and you and the Son sent forth the Spirit to help us, our helper. And so we pray even now, Holy Spirit, guide us into truth. Help us see the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and the return of Christ, and how we ought to think rightly about that. And so doing, live faithfully in this life. We can only do that with your help. We can have all the intellectual knowledge in the world, all the theological knowledge in the world, and it means nothing without your Spirit's help. So Spirit help, we pray for the glory of Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. Four truths about the future return of Christ that should lead to present faithfulness. Four truths about the future return of Christ that should lead to present faithfulness. Truth number one, God cares when we suffer. God cares when we suffer. Again, Christ is clear. We saw last week that we should expect suffering in, the, in between the times of his first coming and second coming. But I want you to notice how he cares for us. And that even that he says there are times to flee from suffering. So he says you will suffer. He doesn't say pursue it. He doesn't say go after suffering. He says it's going to happen. But I want you to see his compassion and how he cares for his followers. Even, why, even in moments like right now that there's still people in North Africa fleeing from Boko Haram. That there's still brothers and sisters hiding in underground churches in China, even this morning, and increasingly so in India. That it's right sometimes. We see the compassion of God even when his people have to flee from suffering. And so we read in verse 15, he says, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in, he's just referring to, hey, you, you've got the book of Daniel, you know it. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house, and let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Now, there's some words here that can be a bit confusing. Let me just explain very quickly. The abomination of desolation means a desolating sacrilege, something that brings destruction and is sacrilegious. Now, due to the revolt of the Maccabees in 167 B.C. to 160, during this revolt, the Jews actively wondered if that prophecy, the abomination of desolation, had been fulfilled when Antichus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig and other unclean animals on the altar as an offering to Zeus, then ravaged and destroyed much of the temple and the city, killing many of the people. Christ is saying in this moment, in this context, they're thinking maybe that's already happened. Christ is saying, no, the abomination of desolation spoken of in Daniel is not finished being fulfilled. The temple would be defiled even further. And his words were proven Uh, terrifyingly true in AD 70 when Rome ransacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and slaughtered many Jews. Josephus, the first century uh, Roman Jewish scholar and historian, wrote of that ransack in AD 70, no other city ever suffered such things. 
All the calamities which have ever happened to any from the beginning seem not comparable to those which befell the Jews. Spurgeon, commenting on Josephus' writing, says, We read of Jews crucified till there was no more wood for making crosses, of thousands of people slaying one another in the fierce faction fights within the city, of so many of them being sold for slaves they became a drug in the market and all but valueless, and of the fearful carnage when the Romans at length entered the doomed capital. And the blood-curdling story exactly bears out as the Savior's statement uttered nearly 40 years before the terrible events occurred. So Christ in this moment was telling his disciples, when you see these things begin to happen in Judea, flee to the mountains. If you're resting on the rooftop in the evening, don't go down and get anything from the house. Just leave. If you're working out in the field and you took your coat off, don't even go back in your coat. Just go because it's about to be bad. He sees and cares for the suffering of his people. And he, here he calls them to flee from it, not as cowards, but as those who value life and the work he's called them to that is not finished. We see his compassion even for the suffering of his people further, specifically for pregnant women and for children in verse 19. And alas, for women who are pregnant, those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight might not be in winter or on Sabbath. It's harder to flee on those days. For then there'll be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no, never will be. Do you see the protecting mercy of our God? Even in this moment, he's giving his followers a heads up so that he can give them a head start when this persecution comes. He's the chief shepherd who cares for the, his little sheep. Suffering Christian, the same is true for you today. He cares. He loves you. He sees, he knows, he knows your suffering, and he's leading you, he's protecting you, he's feeding you now, even through his word, to nurture and care for you and prepare you for the suffering you're in and for the suffering ahead. Do you hear his word, his, his voice of compassion, even now speaking to you? For others of you, maybe you're not suffering right now, but friend, live long enough and you will. Live long enough in this broken world and suffering will come. When it comes, remember on that day, God cares for you. He's with you. He's near you. He's guiding you. He's looking out for you. And notice he cares so much for his sheep, so much for his followers. He blesses those non-Christians around them in some measure. Verse 22, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved from suffering, not spiritually, be saved physically. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So it's a great mystery, but even those followers of Christ, that he, God is so compassionate for the suffering of his people, there are blessings to those around him, around those people, because of his great compassion and care for his sheep. And even as we saw last week, we see his compassion and his care and his protection as he warns them, his disciples, of false Christs and prophets. Verse 23, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Now, just side note, I don't have much time to go here, but know that in times of suffering and trial, it's real tempting to look for a deliverer or a hero. It's why even Christians often turn to politics in times of suffering when they shouldn't turn to politics and start thinking, if we just had the right politician, then things would get better. You know, he says, watch out, be careful. In times of suffering, they'll say, look, false Christ, false hopes, false prophets. So he warns them, be careful. Verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. I've warned you so you won't fall for it. I'm letting you know now so you won't be duped then. So if they say to you, verse 26, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Jesus cares when we suffer, so, so much so that he gives us warnings in his word to protect us. He is a good and compassionate shepherd. 
non-Christian friend, I just want to point out one of the reasons Christians love the Bible so much is because it is so utterly realistic about life in this broken world. It doesn't like put our heads in the sand and pretend like everything is just positive and easy. No, it reveals and speaks to the great suffering and promises our God cares and is compassionate even to his people as we suffer. It speaks to our deepest pains and fears and reveals a God who is with us and cares about us, even and especially in the midst of our suffering. Build your life on this truth. God cares when you suffer, and he will do so until Christ returns to end our suffering forever. He sees, he knows, he cares. Knowing this truth will help you remain faithful until the end. Second truth, King Jesus is coming back to get us. King Jesus is coming back to get us. Look at verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will become the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. I remember one of my first ever uh, daddy protecting his little girl moments. So my daughter, uh, Eden, who's now uh, 14, almost 15, but was two years old at the time. <clears throat> and uh, we had gone to bed that night not realizing there was a thunderstorm coming. And uh, we're laying in the bed and suddenly a massive flash of lightning that lit up like our entire house <laughs> happens. And I know what's coming right after that, right? There's going to be a loud burst of thunder. So I promise you the lightning happens. I go from dead asleep to totally awake. And I think I just levitated all the way to her bedroom. I don't think my feet hit the floor. <laughs> like I just got to her. <laughs> I, before I was even conscious of what was going on, I was picking up my little girl as suddenly the house rattled with thunder. Because I knew this is her first thunderstorm. She's not having any idea what this is. It's going to terrify her. And so we walked over to the bay window in our house, and we looked out the window, and I held my two-year-old daughter, looking out and explained to her, do you see the flash of lightning? Just after that, listen, there's going to be a crash of thunder coming just behind it. And then we watched it together. And so I taught her, and I said, it's okay. We're safe. We're in the home. We're fine. That's what this light, that's what this norm, or this storm and the, this noise is. I, I wanted her to know, no, no, this is what's going on, and Daddy's with you. I'm here to protect you, even in the midst of, look at these signs, see this sign, then know this thing is coming. Jesus says that is what his return will be like. That when thunder rattles your house, are you shocked? No. Why? Because light lit up the house first. You know after lightning comes thunder. Right? So he said, no, no. As you see these signs, you understand what's happening. When you're driving down the road and you see vultures circling about a mile ahead, are you shocked when you, you see uh, some kind of dead animal on the road? No, you knew. Because those vultures let you know, no, that's coming. Like you see these things and you understand this is what's coming. When you stand at night and gaze at the moon and the stars or during the day you, you cover up the sun's uh, bright light to your eyes, do you think you're the only person on the planet that can see the, the sun and the moon and the stars? No, everybody on the planet is underneath the gaze of, of the stars. So when he returns, everybody underneath the gaze of the stars will know. It's not going to be shocking. It's going to be obvious. We're going to see and know when it happens, when fires destroy lives like a historic city like Maui. Is there anyone in Maui not mourning? No. Everyone under the wrath of those fires is mourning. Verse 30, when Christ returns, his enemies will mourn. Do trumpet, does anybody play a trumpet quietly? 
Like, you don't go to the library and think, I'm going to play my trumpet here. Of course, nobody goes to the library anymore anyway, but that's another conversation and problem. <laughs> but like a trumpet, like it's a loud instrument, and it announces something is happening. So again, Jesus is just saying, look, when I show up, when I come back to get my people, you're going to know. No one's going to like be curious as to, I didn't see it. I didn't know. He snuck up. No, no. He's coming, and it's going to be clear. He's come back. When Jesus comes back, no one will be surprised or confused that the King of Kings is here. The whole planet is going to reveal that he's here. It's going to be obvious when he returns. He will come in great glory and power, fulfilling Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Christian and non-Christian alike. When the King of Kings returns, you will not miss it. All people will see him and either bow in joyful worship or mourn in great grief. That the one who is the great judge of all has returned. This is why we're so serious about taking the gospel to the nations who don't have it. So we're excited about students coming back and taking the gospel to their campuses. We want to reach our neighbors and our friends. That's why Tim is in Zambia and our missionary partners are all over the world. Because we understand Christ is really coming back. He's coming back as a just judge. He's merciful and sending forth grace and mercy. So now is the time in between the times we proclaim this gospel to the nations. The merciful and compassionate God sent his son humbly the first time to save us from our sins, to care for us in our suffering until our suffering is no more. But again, he will return as a just judge who will undoubtedly come to crush his enemies at his second coming. Non-Christian friends, this is where our passion comes from. Christ came humbly to save the first time. We want you to know him. If you reject him in between the times, you will meet him as a just judge, not as a gracious and humble savior. He's so gracious. He's so compassionate that he not only cares for us in our suffering, he joined us in it. So God is not a God. Christ is not a God who's like, oh, no, no, I'm sorry you're going through that and doesn't know what it's like. No, no, no. He came to save sinners who are also sufferers, and he did so by suffering for the sinners. He says, no, 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 I'm going to know what it's like and be tempted as you are in every way yet without sin. I'm going to know what it's like to be betrayed, to be cursed, to be hurt, to be uh, pierced with nails through my hands and feet, with crowns on my head, to be hung on a Roman cross for sin, to be betrayed. I'm going to know what all of that's like experientially in order to save you and bring you back to me. This is how he came the first time. Revelation 19 paints a very different picture of how he will come the second time. This is the moment you can turn to him and live. Turn to him and find life. Turn to the one who suffered for you that you may not suffer forever. We live in between the times. He's still being gracious and merciful. There's still time to repent and believe and have life in his name forever. Today is the day of grace. Repent and believe. And Christian, look again at the glory of verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. The Bible tells us that the angels throw a party in heaven when one sinner repents. Like they throw down. <clears throat> they celebrate. And Jesus here says when he returns, he's going to send those same angels who partied at your salvation to gather you and bring you back to his safety. The partying angels become the gathering angels in that great moment. And I, can, I just imagine, like, one of the angels shows up, like, yo, I've been waiting 1,837 years for this. <laughs> like, I remember, I remember when you were dead in sin and Christ made you come to life. 
I remember when you were blind and, and then you saw. I remember when that person shared the gospel with you and you found life in his name. And now I'm here to get you to take you to glory with him forever. Those parting angels become the gathering angels. Brothers and sisters, there's no need for you to be anxious nor worry. No need to panic. He will come for you. He will make sure you make it home safe. And by his spirit, even right now, he will gather you up and show you the storm and say, you don't need to be nervous. That's just thunder and lightning. I got you. He will guide you to glory. It's the great shepherd who said he would leave the 99 and go get the one. When he returns, your heart will burst with joyful worship. Though here and now, just want you to know one of the great burdens of the pastors of this church. Here and now, every Sunday, there's at least a few members missing from our gathering. There are people we worry about. Has sin swallowed them up and are they hiding? And we're concerned. Not on that day. No more concern or worry on that day. On that day, the chief shepherd will make sure we're all present and safe, every single one of us. No more fighting sin, no more fighting unbelief, no more fleeing suffering, no more fighting Satan, no more fearing death. We will be perfectly safe forever. Endless praise. God cares when we suffer. King Jesus is coming back to get us. Third truth, we can trust his word forever. We can trust his word forever. Jesus uses one of his favorite illustrations, this parable of the fig tree. He often uses the fig tree as a parable different times in the, uh, in the gospels, in his teachings. But in this one, he, he encourages us to trust his word. Now, there's a ton of controversy about how to interpret the difficulties in this text. I'm going to read it to you and, and mention a few of the options that different Christians believe, a few options that we can't believe as Christians as well, and then we'll make some applications on this particular parable. Verse 32, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So I've got for you at least six different views. What does he mean by this generation will not pass? So how, like, what was he talking about? How is that related to the whole conversation? I'm going to give you these views and kind of let you know where you can land within biblical fidelity. View number one, Jesus thought his second coming would happen sooner, and he made a mistake. That's not an option. <laughs> so that view is not an option. We reject that view because we're Christians. Like, right? However, we also reject it because we're like just average scholars. So if you look down at verse 36, Jesus says, no one knows that day or that hour. He says, not even me. The angels don't know. I don't know. Only the Father knows. So he's not going to say something in verse 34, but then he says, hey, I don't know in verse 36. <laughs> like, just read your Bible. It's kind of clear. Okay, clearly that's not what he means. It's also contradictory to everything else the Bible says. So we know that view doesn't work. View number two, this is speaking of what we just read in verse 4 through 28 only. And all of it happened in A.D. 70. So that's what some hold. When he says this is going to happen in this generation, all of it happened in A.D. 70. Some people hold that view. A third view is that this word generation means the Jewish nation. Not just the first generation after Jesus, but all the, uh, the generations that reject him. View number four says generation here might mean the whole human race. It's kind of a weak argument. I wouldn't recommend that one. View number five, the Old Testament uses this word generation as a kind of person. Maybe like we would summarize 
uh, a cultural uh, reality about a culture. Man, this culture today, this culture, these, this generation today, maybe in that kind of language, describing a particular kind of person. We see even in, in back in chapter 23, verse 5, Jesus said to a group of people, the Pharisees, when he's pronouncing woes, you killed Zechariah. Now, nobody living in that day actually killed Zechariah. He's saying your kind, your kind of generation, your kind of culture killed Zechariah. He clearly uh, was talking about their kind. We see that similar in Psalm 14.5 that says the generation of the righteous. Psalm 24.6, the generation of those who seek him. Again, describing a kind of people. Therefore, some people conclude uh, Jesus is saying this generation will not pass away, i.e. the church uh, will survive. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then sixth and finally, this prophecy has a multiple fulfillment phenomena where the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, quote, portends a greater and more universal catastrophe when Christ returns in the judgment at the end of time. Now, most of you are like, I have no idea what those six things you just said are, and we're going to keep it moving. But I do want you to know, again, we reject the first view that Christ didn't know what he was talking about. Obviously, that's not an option. Again, I think the whole human race view is a pretty weak argument. But many of the others are tenable with strengths and weaknesses and how you fit them together with Revelation 20 and, again, the prophecies in Daniel and 1 Thessalonians. But the word that we can bank on is crystal clear. We can trust his word forever. That's what he says. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The word of God is more sure than the ground this building is sitting on right now. His word will last when the earth as we know it is no more. His word is eternal. It doesn't come and go. It is forever. Therefore, what Christ says is worth building your entire life on. This is not what he said even at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. When he wraps up his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, the first discourse, he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Friends, do you view this book that way? I need to build my whole life on this. Otherwise, the storms will destroy me. I, you can build it on anything else but the Word of God by the Spirit of God. And your life will uh, collapse in the end before God. But Christ says, no, you build it. My Word will last forever. From generation to generation, from culture to culture, across all peoples and all places, you don't need a new Word from God. You just need to apply the living Word of God. <laughs> It's like, you don't, you don't need like him to whisper something to you in a dream. Like he can do, God can do whatever he wants. I'm not saying he can't do it. He can do whatever he wants to do. But what he's letting you know is I've given you what you need. Like this is it. He's, he's given you this word so you can build your life on this word. Go all in on the word. Because it'll be totally true and reliable 17.3 billion years from now. Generations will come and go. The words forever. Build your life there. God cares when we suffer, number one. King Jesus is coming back to get us, number th two. Number three, we can trust his word forever. Truth number four, no one knows when he's coming back. Now, this is not a contradiction to point two. In point two, I was explaining, nobody's going to be surprised that he has come. It's going to be obvious that he's come. But what we're seeing in point three and what Christ is teaching now is nobody knows when he is coming. Everybody knows that he has come, but nobody knows when he is coming. We will know it when he comes. We just don't know when that will be. It'll be subtle, sudden and startling, like that first strike of lightning always is. Look at verse 36. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angel of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. 
For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. How many thoughts does the average person have in a given day? Did a little research. Nobody really agrees on it, which is interesting. Lots of thoughts about how many thoughts, but nobody has the right thought, apparently. <laughs> but somewhere between 12,000 and 60,000, pretty big range. Again, they got a little work to do. But somewhere between 12 and 60,000 thoughts a day. Let's just say 40,000. 7.88 billion people times 40,000 thoughts a day. I have no idea what that equals. But what I know is not one of them is the correct answer on when Christ is going to return. <laughs> no one knows. <laughs> Like no one knows that hour, Christ made it crystal clear, not even himself in his incarnation, not even the angels. No one knows the day or hour, the second coming of Christ. Humanity is excluded from that knowledge. We do not know. Therefore, when you hear people predict the day Jesus is coming back, ignore them. <laughs> They're ignoring Jesus' own words and then telling you when he's going to come back. It's like, I don't think you know him. <laughs> Like, you, you're reading the wrong book. Like, he says you're not going to know. So what this means is we don't need to spend all of our time looking at charts to figure it out. Let me save you some time. Look at the charts. Get to the end of it. The answer is you don't know. <laughs> Stop. Like, don't waste time at the charts. It's fine. Again, you can look. You can try to like, It's fine to know him. You want to know him the best we can. We want to know the truth. We want to know about his return. It's fine to study it. But don't, like, you're not going to know. You're not going to get the day and hour. Don't make yourself anxious about this. Instead... What he says is, even in this, this illustration, this can even lead to people are like, you, you, what you need to be worried about is that people are refusing to believe it's going to happen. And they're living like it's not going to happen, just like in the days of Noah. Like they're just living their life like God hadn't told them a flood was coming. Just ignoring judgment. And God sent the, the flood, sent the judgment, and they were swept up in the wrath of God. And, and Jesus is saying, just like in the days of Noah, people actually don't think this judgment's coming. They're just living about their normal life. But it's really coming. You need to understand, you don't know when it's coming, but it is coming. Therefore, we ought to live differently and think differently as we live this life. And that's the point of what he says in verse 40 and 41. There's going to be a great and awful separation that will take place suddenly at this return. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One taken and one left. On that day, whenever that day is, there will be a great division. Those who are with God and receive his grace and mercy and comfort forever. Those who are against God. Those who receive his wrath and just judgment forever. Therefore, the application is clear. Verse 42. Stay awake. For you do not know what day the, your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Like a thief in the night, he will show up at an hour that we do not know. Since you have no idea when, watch always. Friends, salvation is not something you should put off. I've been in ministry, vocational ministry for 20 plus years now. Walked with the Lord for right around 30. I've gone to a lot of funerals. I've gone to a lot of funerals of young people who thought they were going to live a lot longer. Today's the day of salvation. Either it could be because, uh, or, or, or judgment could be coming because you die way earlier than you think, or because he returns. 
So salvation is not something you put off. You watch, you look, you'll be ready now. So I even challenge non-Christians in the room. Don't put off following God. Don't put off the conviction that God is messing in your heart. Don't think, yeah, but I want to do this first. There's nothing more important than this, and that first may never come. Today is the day of salvation. Look to Christ and be saved. Understand his grace and mercy and compassion that you're hearing, that you're accountable for, even hearing this morning. Respond in faith. Tomorrow is not promised. Your parents' salvation does not guarantee yours. You must be ready for his return. This is why we urge non-Christians, even among us, run, run to the greater ark, namely Jesus Christ. So just like people, Noah's family goes into the ark and they're saved from the wrath of God, so those who through faith go into Christ are saved from the wrath of God. Run to Christ, this ark. You'll be safe in him. Otherwise, you will drown in the wrath of God. Today's the day of salvation. Look to Christ and be saved. And ask for help. Like, we're so happy to help you taste and see that the Lord is good, to point you to this grace and mercy. God cares when we suffer. King Jesus is coming back to get us. We can trust his word forever. No one knows when he's coming back. Therefore, the application, five, we ought to live as faithful stewards until he comes. So we ought to live as faithful stewards till he comes. Look at verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master set over his household to give him their food at proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Now if Rachel and I went on a vacation and asked one of you to house sit and kids sit for us, then we decided to re return home earlier than expected and we showed up to the crib. House was taken care of. Kids' schoolwork was done, and they were in the bed asleep. How are we going to respond to the sitters in that moment? Like, man, like, you crushed it. <laughs> You've been faithful. I trust you. I'm willing to do this and more. Because you've stewarded our home and our children, our most precious treasure. Like, you've taken care of this work. I trust you now. I realize you're trustworthy. I will entrust you in the future to do more. There's a principle here for Christians that we cannot be afraid of, as we'll see more next week when we get into the parable of talents. If we are faithful with the little things, God will increase our responsibility in his work. God rewards faithfulness in little things with more work and faith, uh, that you might be faithful in more things or greater things. This is not us earning. It's like, no, no, he freely gives of his grace. And when you steward that, he sees that and he freely gives of grace to steward more. Or, or more difficult, or more challenging, more strategic. Like, this is how he responds. He gives more grace to do all the work, all the more. Paul captures this reality in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He doesn't see any contradiction here. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God within me. <laughs> Paul gets it. No, no, no. The, like, Paul's like, I was an enemy of God. And now he becomes... Like writes 13 books of the New Testament, greatest church planter of all time. And he's like, look, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'd, still, I'd be dead in sin and an enemy of God if it wasn't for his grace. I worked harder than anybody. Now it wasn't even I working. It was God's grace in me. <laughs> so this is how it works in the kingdom. We've got to understand now he entrusts things to you for you to steward and leverage. And as you do that faithfully, he will entrust more to you. The reward of faithful service is more faithful service. But, verse 48 continues, if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
The opposite is also terrifyingly true. If Rachel and I returned a few days late, but we did so in the middle of the night, we came to our home in the middle of the night to find a house party going on and our children in the midst of it unsafe and in great danger. The sitters would catch wrath. (laughs) I wouldn't be entrusting them anything else further. (laughs) Why? Because those are my precious children. It's my home. We entrusted something to them. And Christ gives this warning. Wicked servants who are not ready for his return will experience just judgment. When it says they would be cut into two, literally what he's, what he's talking about there is they'll be separated from all hope, separated from the people of God, removed from all hope to be with God forever and sent to that place where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The enemies of God will get exactly what they want, away from God forever. This is his promise. In conclusion, this may seem harsh at first, but consider the whole story. God is holy and righteous, and he's a holy, Christ himself is the holy and righteous king who's explicitly told you what sin against him looks like, what sin against him deserves, and how to be saved from the penalty of your sin through faith in his work. And all of this is by grace. You can't do anything to get back right but receive the free gift of his grace. So he's let you know, I am holy. You are sinful. That is a problem. And there's a means by which to rectify that problem through faith in my work. And think about it. He came humbly born of a virgin in a dirty manger, lived a perfectly sinless life as the time-tested Holy Scriptures proclaim. Then he was stripped and beaten and mocked and hung on a criminal's cross where I imagine he wept and his teeth gnashed as he took the wrath of God so that sinners might have the full love of God. And then on the third day, he walked out of the tomb, showing you indeed that he is the greater ark that can survive the flood of God's just wrath and protect all who come to him. Which is why we say run to the greater ark and flee the wrath to come. And on that ark, believe his great promises and remain faithful till he returns to take you home. In between his first and his second coming, he's taught us. He cares when we suffer. He is coming back to get us. We can trust his word forever. And no one knows when he's coming. Therefore, let us be faithful stewards. And be in this community called the church, helping one another get to that great day. That's what the church is. The people who've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, and we're following him together. Like a Christian is a follower of Christ. A church is a group of Christians committed to following him together. And saying, Lord, we want to be means of grace to help one another get to glory. Either when we die and then the second coming is later, or if he comes back in our lifetime. We get each other safe to glory. I want to conclude by reading the last three paragraphs of a letter from Allison Beatty. She's a former member of King's Cross, spent about three years with us, and then moved back to Texas after being a part of our faith family for three years during a difficult season of her life. The whole letter is incredible. I'll get it to the membership, and we may read it at the faith family meeting. But I want to conclude with the last three paragraphs. She says, Well, I'm finally starting to feel that my new church is home, or my new church home is also becoming family. And I'm grateful to have found such a solid, diverse, gospel-centered church in Austin. I still ponder frequently all that King's Cross was and still is to me. Texas does now feel like home again. And God is continuing his good work in me at my church here. Yet at the same time, I still feel that half of my family and my heart are in North Carolina. I miss you all dearly and long for the day I can visit and fellowship with you all again and introduce you to my daughter, Eleanor. Eleanor. 
Several months ago, I was thinking about you all. It was overcome with tears of sadness that I don't get to be with King's Cross each week anymore. But then God graciously brought this beautiful thought to my mind. This is only temporary separation that I'm experiencing. And one day I'll get to worship with you all again for eternity. There'll be no more physical distance. There'll be no more ending into our praising God together. My tears of sadness were then overcome with tears of joy for the goodness of our great God and his marvelous promises. I'm truly undeserving of his lavish grace and I cannot wait for heaven. So it's through my teary eyes that I finally write this letter to you almost exactly one year after moving. I remember the first time I visited King's Cross with my mother-in-law whispered to me after the service, I think this is going to be your church family. And boy, she was more than right. Uh, she was more right than she could have known. King's Cross will ever be a part of my family, and I'm grateful for all, the God, all that God is doing in and for you. I pray that he would continue his good work in your beautiful body of believers and that there will many, be many more stories of gratefulness to God for King's Cross for decades to come. I also pray that Eric and I will be able to live out the very things we saw you all display in our lives here in Austin that other believers may find, also find open arms, ears, and doors through our home that would lead them to deeper knowledge of and affection for Christ. Finally, I hope and pray this letter encourages you to continue in the good work of the gospel, knowing that God is using you mightily in the lives of his people. With so much love and gratitude, Allison Beatty. That's a good understanding of eschatology. That's a good understanding of the end times. That's how you apply knowing he's going to return. That's how you apply trusting in his word. That's how you apply knowing he cares for me in my suffering. That's what it looks like to live out one day, one day, no more suffering, no more pain, no more moving away, no more separation, endless praise. That day's coming. That's good doctrine. May the Lord use us, sanctify us, and grow us and look forward to that day, even in these days, and may we be faithful until then. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace.